Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of God. Amen, church. Please be seated. What a great and awesome God that we serve. What a great time we have had in worship together as a family, as the bride of Christ. Again, I just want to welcome you here this morning. So glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, so glad that you are joining us this morning We're here to study and learn from and apply and be changed by the Word of God. Well, Bill Walsh was the head coach for the San Francisco 49ers for 10 years. And during that time, he won three NFC championship titles and three Super Bowls in 1981, 1984, and 1988. In 1993, he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Why do I bring him up? Because Bill Walsh is credited to have said this. It's essential now to have a good game plan. A game plan, just as it sounds, it's a strategy that a team uses to win the game. It is a detailed plan that a coach creates to help their team maximize their chances for success. Let me say this, church, it is essential now more than ever that we as Christians have a good game plan for the end times, that we have a biblical game plan for the end times. And that's what Jesus gives us right here in Mark chapter 13. This is Jesus' game plan for his church for the end times. It's a plan for the end. 
Jesus here, he lays out his strategy for his disciples and future followers to endure. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to share three ways to be ready for what's to come. Because it's coming. Make no mistake, it is coming. But before we get there, before we get to the game plan, I want to take a moment and I want to go back and just bring us up to speed, work through what we've already worked through the book of Mark, remind us where we've been, because believe it or not, last week we completed chapter 12 of the 16 chapters in Mark, which means we're roughly three quarters of the way through the book, if you can believe that. We started in January. The first eight chapters of the of book of Mark, they dealt with the question, who is Jesus? And you may remember as we studied those first eight chapters, Mark gave evidence to the identity of Jesus Christ, mostly through Jesus' miracles. We saw Jesus heal people. We saw him cast out demons. We saw him feed thousands of people. He did amazing, miraculous things. And all that was meant to show us who Jesus is. That section of the book of Mark, that culminates in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And then after that, we entered a new section, Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. He was moving toward the cross. He knew the time of the cross was getting closer. And along that way, as he was traveling, he spent most of his time with his disciples, teaching them what it meant to be a disciple. That section answers the question, what is a disciple of Jesus? That was the rest of chapter 8 and chapters 9 and 10. And then we hit chapter 11. And that introduced a new section, Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. And there he dealt with the temple, he dealt with the religious leaders, and he dealt with the religious system. What we do see in that section is Jesus answering questions that deal with the question of his authority. You may remember the religious leaders came to him saying, who gave you the authority to do this? And he spent that time answering that question and demonstrating his authority. This morning... We enter a subsection of Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. You've probably heard about this. And this will comprise all of chapter 13. This morning's message introduces a hot topic, the end times. All through chapter 13, we'll be dealing with end time or what I will call eschatological themes. There's a lot of controversy over these ideas as we look over the next several weeks and months, there's a lot of controversy over these ideas, even among Christians. So let me just say right off the bat, this is one of those areas that we need to have grace with one another. We need to have grace with one another. Even in this church here, many of us differ on what we believe is going to happen, how it's going to happen, how the end times will play out, and that's okay. We can disagree on some of these things. They're not core doctrinal issues apart from one truth. One core truth I hope we all agree on in this room when it comes to the end times is this. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and he's going to ultimately defeat evil and he's going to set up his kingdom. Anyone ready for that? Amen. With that, I want to get into this morning's message. If I was to summarize this sermon in one sentence, it would be this. Our world is going to get worse and worse and worse, so follow the game plan and trust in God. 
our world is going to get worse and worse and worse. And I know sometimes you'll look out, you'll see the news, you'll hear things, and you think it's bad, and it's bad, but it's going to get worse. And our response is to follow the game plan and trust God. And I want to point out this morning, the sermon is based on three imperatives. An imperative is a command. It's a do this or don't do this kind of statement. And Jesus gives three main imperatives in our text, and that's what the focus of the message is on today. So if you haven't already, please join me in Mark 13, and I'm going to read from verse 1. It says this, And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, that's a pleasant statement. I mean, how many of you would like to hear something like that as you're sightseeing? This is going to be destroyed. That's a downer. Why does Jesus say that? Well, before I get to the why, let's set the scene here. What's going on? Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, and they're leaving Jerusalem, too. And it's probably close to evening. The day has been full of questions. It's been full of teaching. And as they leave, one of the disciples points out the magnificence of the temple. Now, make no mistake, the temple was magnificent. In fact, I read this week that the temple, this temple, Herod's temple, probably should have been listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world. But then we would have had to say eight wonders of the ancient world. This temple was larger than the Ephesian temple for Artemis, which is among the seven wonders. And it's possible that the reason it's not listed among those wonders was due to anti-Jewish prejudice. It's possible. But whatever the reason, the point is the temple was magnificent. And just to give you an idea, here's a picture of a model that someone built of the temple as it looked at the time of Christ. Construction on the temple had begun before Jesus' birth, and it was still being constructed here in Mark 13. And it was huge. I don't know if you can tell the little model people on the picture there, but the temple was absolutely huge. If you and I had a chance to see it, we would have been enthralled by it. And I know, personally, I've seen some pretty cool structures. I've, I've been to Europe, and I've seen Notre Dame, and I've seen the Eiffel Tower, and I've seen Westminster Abbey and some of those, and, and they're amazing. But I would bet that Herod's temple would dwarf those attractions. And yet, what does Jesus say? He tells his disciples, not one stone will be left on another. It will be totally destroyed. And by the way, Jesus doesn't appear to be concerned about that. Why? Why did he say this? Because in a few precious short days, the temple will be obsolete. This magnificent structure will be completely obsolete. To Jesus, it's no more than an old building that represents an outdated covenant. They leave this area. And by the way, this is the last time that Jesus visits the temple. His ministry there is done. And this, verses 1 and 2, this introduces and sets up the conversation that's to follow. You would think after a statement like that, we would have questions, right? What is he talking about? The disciples, they had questions. Look with me at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, 
Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they leave the city, they head east to the Mount of Olives, and I've said before that this is a mountainous area, and it's named so because at one time olive groves covered the area. And here, by the way, is the Garden of Gethsemane, so we'll definitely be back here. And it says that Jesus sits, the text says, opposite the temple. In other words, they were up high enough that they could still see the temple. And you could see, could have the, the setting here is just perfect for this conversation. And here we see that Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and notice Andrew joins them and comes to him. Now, it's interesting because these four disciples were the first disciples that Jesus chose way back in Mark chapter 1. They come to him and they ask. And I believe the addition of, of Andrew here is another one of those details. We've seen details all along the book of Mark that, that are evidence that this is eyewitness account. I think that the addition of Andrew to the, the inner circle here, Peter, James, and John, is one of those details. One more bit of evidence that this is eyewitness testimony. The disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask the question, the question that burns on many minds, when? When is this going to happen? When will these things be? And they're referring, of course, to the destruction of the temple because Jesus just told them the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, when's that going to happen? What's going to be the sign that it's about to be accomplished? But to them, it's more than just the destruction of the temple. It's important for us to realize that in a Jew's mind, the destruction of the temple signifies the end. If we were to hear a report that the Statue of Liberty would be destroyed, that would get our attention. But by no means would we think, well, that's just the end of America. But in the Jewish mindset, you destroy the temple, it's over. It's a sign of the end. And this is important. Because what Jesus is about to say ties two events together. So follow me on this, okay? The discussion in the succeeding verses is about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. It was still future during this conversation. But it's also about the end times before Jesus returns. Both of these events are woven into these verses, and sometimes it's hard to pick out when Jesus is talking about which event. And just so you know, this is a method that was common in prophetic literature. Throughout the prophets, they often combined two events in one passage. In theological circles, this is referred to as a double reference, two events spoken of at the same passage. So to kind of help you as we dissect this, to help you think about it, think of the words near and far. Near and far. There's often a near interpretation of what Jesus is saying here and a far interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. The near interpretation would center around 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. The far interpretation would center around his second coming. Everyone got that? With all that in mind, let's dive into what Jesus is actually teaching. So here's your first point this morning from our text. We're talking about a game plan, a plan of action for the end times. Here's your first point. Don't be led astray by false Christs. Don't be led astray by false Christs. Jesus says in verse 5 to their response, and Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. 
Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, notice, Jesus doesn't really answer their question. He doesn't tell them, well, on this day, on this year, at this time, this is when these things are going to happen. He points to signs. He points to events that are going to happen. He never gives them an actual time frame. In fact, as crazy as it sounds, in verse 32, Jesus actually tells them he doesn't even know the time. And he's Jesus. And that just blows my mind. But instead, he tells them, watch out. See to it that no one leads you astray. That word in verse 5 for see, that means, as you might expect, the faculty of sight. But it also has the connotation to take heed, to guard against. Jesus is saying, guard yourselves, take heed against false Christs. You could say little c Christs or little m messiahs. Take heed. Jesus says here, many will come in my name, saying I am he. Now, this was actually very common in the first century. People rose up all the time claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be messianic. They were little m messiah figures who rose up and they tried to revolt against Rome or they tried to lead people astray. Josephus was a a Roman Jewish historian and he wrote about the historical events that surrounded Jesus And he tells of wicked men who deceive people by claiming divine inspiration and leading them to the wilderness to await a sign of God's deliverance. They were deceiving people. That was little C Christs, little M Messiahs. They deceive. And Jesus tells us here, don't be led astray. Do not be deceived. Now, I'm here to tell you that it was big in the first century, but it's not just a first century thing. This has happened all throughout history, and it's happened in recent years. People have risen up as little C Christs and deceived people. And this can happen. I see this in two different ways. It can happen in big, tragic ways, and it can happen in smaller, subtle ways. In 1993, David Koresh was a leader of a cult known as the Branch Davidians. Some of you remember this. Koresh claimed to be the end-time Christ, and he would reveal the meaning of the seven seals of the book of Revelation. David Koresh's life ended in tragedy. Federal agents raided the Mount Carmel Center, which is where he and his associates were holding up, and he perished. He was not the Christ, but he led many astray, tragically some to their deaths, believing a lie. And that's an example of a big way, a big tragic way where a little M Messiah rises up and leads people astray. Now, I'm speaking to a group of people that I know, and I doubt very much that anyone in this room would be led astray by such an individual, but I do need to warn you that there are smaller ways, subtler ways in which this happens. There are little m messianic influences that Christians buy into. And I'm not necessarily talking about people who claim to be the Messiah. Rather, I'm talking about people or just influences that we put too much stock in. That we may believe this person or this idea has all the answers. We may believe that this is going to result in our happiness. Let me give you an example. A lot of times we can buy into campaign promises. Politicians making claims that their policies will make this country a better place. 
And perhaps there is some truth to what they're saying. Absolutely. But you see, it's so easy for us to cling to a person or cling to an idea as a small-s savior. I mean, even if the politician does everything that he or she promises to do, which in itself would be a miracle, even if they do, and even if it improves the country, they will never satisfy the craving of the human soul. And sadly, many Christians can be led astray by these things. They can put their hope in these things. They can put too much stock in these things. Christians can get wrapped up in in the message of a new book or a philosophy. Christians can get wrapped up in their children or their spouse or their pastor and think that this person, this idea, this message, this is going to bring the happiness that I'm looking for. And my friends, those things are nothing more than little sea Christs. Or better said, they're counterfeits. They can't deliver the satisfaction or the hope or the security or the blessing that comes from Christ alone. My friends, seek Christ. Plain and simple, pursue Jesus. Don't get derailed by other things and hold them to the level of God and his word. Follow Jesus. And remember, all those other ideas, all those other relationships, all those other things, when they're healthy, they should draw us closer to the Savior. They're not meant to take the place of the Savior. Here's another thought, and this is big. Don't buy anyone's claim to know the timing of any apocalyptic event. The tribulation, the rapture, Jesus' second coming, all of those events, they're kept secret by God. Again, Jesus himself said he did not know when these things would happen. Danal Jaul is a commentator who wrote a commentary on the book of Mark, and he says this, if Jesus is uncertain of God's timing, There is good reason to be suspicious of other forecasters boasting knowledge of matters received for God alone. Well put. I don't think I need to push on this too hard, but just just the idea, just the warning, don't buy in to what anyone says if they claim to know the timing of any of these events. We're talking about a plan for the end, a game plan for the end times. What do we do as the world gets worse and worse and worse? Our first point, don't be led astray by false Christs. Here's your second point. Don't be alarmed by war and disease, disaster. Excuse me. Don't be alarmed by war and disaster. Jesus says in verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. That's our second imperative right there. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus tells his disciples, and by extension, us as Christians, not to be alarmed by the wars and the rumors of wars. And he includes in verse 8, natural disasters. Now that word alarmed, that means inwardly aroused. It is disturbed or frightened. It's the feeling you get when something awful happens or you hear some tragic news, that feeling like the floor just drops out from underneath your feet. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid of war and the reality of war. And this has connotations in first century leading up to the time of the destruction of the temple. 
between the years of 66 AD and 70 AD, Israeli rebel groups rebelled against Rome. They caused devastation for Israel, which eventually led to the destruction of the temple. That would be one of those near interpretations that G- of Jesus' words here, that war and skirmishes and battles are coming, leading up to the, t- the time of the destruction of the temple. But here's the thing, and you know this. War has always been and always will be a tragic part of human history. As long as you and I are on this planet, war will be present It will be part of our lives. We here in America, as of yet, we don't have to deal with war on our soil, but we see it in the news. We hear about it. We talk about it. Hopefully, you pray in lieu of it. And it's happening right now. You know it and I know it. And ever since I can remember, war has been happening somewhere on the globe. My, My father was an army ranger during the late 80s and early 90s, and he did go to combat at one at one time. But many times, he was on missions in the air flying to invade another country, and those missions were aborted. Global conflict is happening all the time. But even then, be that as it may, it is likely what Jesus is alluding here is not merely the presence of war, but the increase of it as time draws closer to his return. Jesus tells us this must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, you will see and hear much about conflict, but that's not the end. Not yet. And along with that, we see natural disasters happening all the time. Now, November, just last month, there was flooding in Brazil. In October, there was Hurricane, Hurricane Otis that hit Mexico. Also in October, there was an earthquake that shook Afghanistan. It's happening all the time all over the globe. Just this past year, we here in Decatur had a storm. Now, it was a mini storm compared to those other things, but we had a storm that knocked over trees and a telephone pole out here. It's happening all the time, and it will continue to happen. However, in reference to Jesus' words here, in the book of Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel passage to the chapter here in Mark 13, Luke says there will be great earthquakes, massive earthquakes as the time for Christ's return draws near. And we get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 6. You can read this on the screen. Revelation 6, 12 through 14, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That is a massive geographical reshaping earthquake. And as the time draws closer for Jesus to return, natural disasters will increase in frequency and intensity. All of this is happening. All of this is increasing And we will be tempted to believe it's the end. But notice Jesus says, not yet. This is the beginning, the beginning of birth pains. Jesus compares war and natural disaster to birth pains as if the earth is in great labor in expectation of Jesus' return. It's going to get bad. I want to be honest with you. It's going to get bad. What's our response? Jesus says, 
don't be alarmed. Don't be filled with terror. Don't let yourself go to the place of fright and despair. And you might say, how? I mean, how do I do that? If I'm going to be reading about these things, they're going to be increasing. It's going to get worse. We may even experience them. How do I not go to a place of fright and despair? Simply this, take your fear to the Lord. Now, Jesus, he's not saying here, don't you dare be afraid. Don't feel fear. That's not what he's saying. We're going to feel fear, yes. What he's saying is, don't be dominated by your fear. Don't let your heart carry you away to a place where you are uncontrolled by fear. Take your fear to the Lord. And let me challenge you, along with this idea, let me challenge you. This is true beyond just end times. This is true for our life, our everyday life. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And let me explain what I mean. In the Christian life, there is often a tension between our flesh response and our faith response. When something crazy happens that causes a reaction of fear, our flesh will be tempted to carry us along with that fear to a place of anxiety or perhaps hysteria, whereas our faith will be challenging us to trust God. And a lot of times we'll sense the pull, we'll live in that tension, and that's okay. It's okay to live in that tension between faith and fear. We feel the fear, but respond in faith. And we take all that to Jesus. Lord, I am afraid, but I am trusting you. Help my unbelief. Live in that tension. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Here's another application. Don't go hysterical over worldwide events that seem eschatological. You follow me on that? Don't point to this war or that natural disaster and think the end is near. Don't go wearing a sandwich board in downtown Decatur with a doomsday message on it, okay? Don't do that. By the way, that's not the message Jesus tells us to proclaim. Jesus tells us a clear message. He has us on a clear message, a clear mission, which is to make disciples, Matthew 28. And while I'm on that topic, Don't get sucked into all the eschatological theories that surround the end times and forget our commission. So many Christians, they get sucked into the theories that surround the book of Revelation, theories that surround Matthew 24, theories that surround 1 Thessalonians, theories that surround Mark 13, and they let those ideas eclipse the great commission. Don't go there. I'm not saying don't read those things. They're in the Bible. Read them, of course. I'm not saying don't study these things and don't read what other people have written. That's fine. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is don't let these things sidetrack you from the mission Jesus gave us. Don't veer from the mission. Don't immerse yourself in end-time ideology and forget to make disciples. So don't go hysterical. Don't freak out when bad things happen. Instead, when war wages, rages and threatens, when pandemics sweep our world, when earthquakes destroy sections of whole cities, when tornadoes sweep through quiet towns, when tsunamis devastate whole islands, grieve for the loss of life. Grieve with the hurting but trust in God's ultimate 
plan and remember he's in control. Even in those things, he is in control. And here's a thought. The next time you hear of a military conflict or a natural disaster that ravages some part of the world, stop and pray. Stop and pray as a family even. Go to the Lord on behalf of those who are filled with hate or those who are victimized and pray. Men, lead your families in this. Let your wives and children see you go to the Lord in prayer on behalf of these people. Reiterate your trust in God even in the midst of such disaster. Let me just say the application here is simple. Trust God. Simple to say it, harder to do it, but trust God. If you are a saved believer in Jesus, guess what? You have nothing to fear. Though the world may be falling apart around you, God has you safely within his hands. Psalm 32, 7 reads, You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Final game plan. We're looking at three plans for the end times. Here's the last one. Be on your guard against antagonism toward Christianity. Join me in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now this is a sobering reality. For the last 2,000 years, Christians have been hated persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and executed. And we've all heard the horrendous things that Emperor Nero did to Christians. We read about what Peter and Paul and others did and experienced in the book of Acts. We hear stories from history and in our day of believers in Jesus suffering at the hands of others, mostly in other countries, but even here believers have suffered for their faith. And again, there is a near fulfillment here. Jesus tells the disciples, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness of them. And we see that through the book of Acts. We see the apostles face these things. They are delivered over to councils. They are beaten. They stand before governors and kings and they bear witness of Jesus. And we can read about that and that's the near interpretation from Acts. However, there is a far interpretation of this as well. I believe persecution will intensify as days grow closer to Christ's return. In fact, in Revelation verses 9 through 11, we read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then note this, then they were each given a white robe 
and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be completed who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's going to get worse. Even our own family might betray us, Jesus says. The hatred for Christians is going to increase to the point people will sell their own flesh and blood, either to protect themselves or simply because they hate Christianity that much. But did you notice the reason? Why is God allowing this to happen? It's there at the end of verse 9, to bear witness before them. God brought Paul and others before kings and rulers to be a witness to them. In fact, in Acts 27, Paul is aboard a ship at storm, and an angel comes to him and says to him, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. Now, that actual event is not recorded in the book of Acts. The book ends before Paul actually gets to stand before Caesar, but I believe that event happens. I believe Paul stood before Caesar and proclaimed the gospel. And one of the reasons God allows this persecution is to bring the gospel before those who otherwise would not hear. And that leads us to the short sentence in verse 10 where Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That is a promise to cling to. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That is a promise that we cling to, that even though times are going to grow worse, even though people are going to be deceived, even though wars and natural disaster abound and Christians will be betrayed and greatly mistreated, the gospel will be proclaimed. It will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped, and it's God's good news from him about him that leads to salvation, and in spite of the chaos of the world, in spite of the evil of our world, it's going to succeed. By the way, that little verse has been overinterpreted by some Christians who think that it's our duty to bring the gospel to every nation so that Christ can return, and that's not what it's saying. Yes, it is our responsibility to preach the gospel to all nations. Matthew 28, no argument from me there. But God is not dependent on us to do this in order to bring about his return. We have no control over when Jesus returns. The gospel being heard among all the nations is not a condition to Christ's return. It's an assurance that the gospel will go out to all nations before he returns. God will enact his plan for the end times when he's ready. So hear me, all attempts to take the gospel to other nations who've never heard, that's commendable. Do that. We're told to do that. That's our business. But we don't do it to try to speed up Christ's return. He will come back when he's ready. We should take comfort in this verse, rather, because in spite of the ugliness that is to come, the gospel won't be stopped. So be on guard, church. Be on guard against antagonism toward Christianity. How? How do we be on guard? How do we respond to the increasing persecution? Jesus tells us to be on your guard. And what does that mean? It literally means watch yourselves. Why? What are we supposed to watch about ourselves? Well, first, we're not supposed to be surprised by persecution. Watch yourselves that you are not surprised by persecution. In fact, believe it or not, persecution is the norm. Don't buy into the idea 
that we can make this world some kind of utopian place where love and peace and acceptance abound. That's not going to happen, not by our efforts. Now, we here in America, let me just be, be frank with you, we've lived in a bubble for about 300 years. This period of relative peace that we experience, that's the exception. That's not the norm to Christianity. Persecution is the norm. Recognize the norm. Watch yourselves by recognizing the norm, by not being surprised by the norm. Don't think that we can stop the norm. Learn to live in the norm. And how do we do that? How do we learn to live in the norm of persecution? Again, it goes back to trust. Trust in the Lord. When friends and family members betray you on account of Christ, don't let that rock your world so much that your faith shatters. Cling to the Lord. He told you this would happen. Trust him. Have this mindset. Have this game plan in the event that you live to see such atrocious persecution. Don't buy into the idea that these things won't happen in your lifetime. Don't buy into that idea. We've seen just how quickly the world can change. It can change in a day. September 11th, 2001. Hijackers crashed planes into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon, and the world has never been the same. These teenagers sitting here right in front of me, they have no idea what it's like to walk a friend to their gate in the airport and say goodbye at the gate and watch them get on the plane. Can't do that anymore. The world can change on a dime. So don't think that we're safe. Don't think that persecution is not going to come in our lifetime. It could come tomorrow. I'm not trying to scare anybody. That's not my goal here. My goal is that I want you to be prepared. I want you to be thinking about these things because Jesus tells us to have a game plan. You know, we've looked at how Jesus told the disciples the plan, remember? Three times he told them of his death and resurrection throughout the book of Mark, and they missed it. They missed it, even after being told three times, well, my brothers and my sisters, we're in danger of missing it too. If we don't grasp Jesus' words here in Mark 13 that it's going to get bad, then we have a potential of missing it and crashing and burning and, and resulting to fear instead of faith. Let's listen to him. Let's be ready. And how do we get ready? First, get your head in the game. Get your head in the game. My kids like to watch this Disney show called High School Musical. The premise of the movie is in the title. It's high schoolers singing. (laughs) And there's one song. It's sung by the basketball team at the school, and what they're trying to do is encourage each other to stay focused, and they sing, get your head in the game, and it's actually pretty clever. They use basketballs as the beat of the song. It's pretty cool. Harvest Decatur, get your head in the game. Get your mind wrapped around the reality that we do live in a bubble. And when we read and hear about persecution that's happening in other parts of the world right now, don't think that can't happen here. Instead, let those things remind you that at any time, the bubble could pop. Get your head in the game. Secondly, 
don't let any persecution that you experience detract you from preaching the gospel. Any persecution, be it large or small, for any length of time is not worth comparing with the glories that are to be revealed to us in the next life. Whether some coworker or neighbor or family member makes fun of you because you're a Christian, or whether your life is at stake for your faith, be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And I know because many of you have told me that you have family members antagonistic toward Christianity. Don't cave under their attacks. Don't avoid confrontation. Don't use these opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Yes, do it out of love. Yes, do it respectfully, but be bold. And I know, trust me, I know there's a time to be quiet. I get that. There's a time not to speak. I understand that. And I just challenge you, ask the Spirit for wisdom in that, but don't let that be an excuse to remain silent, especially if God's giving you a clear opportunity. Be bold. Paul prayed in Ephesians 6, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If Paul needed boldness, so do we. Now, there's one more thing I want to unpack here. Do you see where Jesus says in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Everybody see that? In the context of the passage, Jesus is telling him to do this when they're standing before governors and kings. We see this in the book of Acts, that the apostles stood before rulers with confidence as the Holy Spirit spoke through them. I believe what's going on there in verse 11 is that Jesus is promising Holy Spirit words in the most intimidating moments, standing before authority, standing in a trial-type situation where God gives you the opportunity to speak for him. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Let the Holy Spirit speak. And I believe that. But I don't believe we can take this verse and say, well, then I should never prepare to speak the gospel. I don't believe that's what it's saying. Do you follow me on that? I don't believe we should not prepare ourselves to share the gospel on a day-to-day basis. Let me say that positively. I believe we should prepare ourselves to share the gospel on a day-to-day basis. I believe we should learn to clearly share the gospel with those around us. I don't believe this verse is an excuse to ignore preparing to share the gospel. I do believe that if we suddenly find ourselves arrested and awaiting to stand trial for our faith, then we should heed these words and solely depend on the Holy Spirit. I believe that would be in obedience to Jesus' words here, but I don't believe these words are an excuse to not be prepared to share the gospel. Does the Holy Spirit play a part in our preparation? Yes, he does. Does the Holy Spirit give us words to say when we're having a conversation with our neighbor and family? Yes, he does. Will the Holy Spirit give us what we need if we're dragged before the authorities? Yes, he will. But don't use this verse as an excuse to not be prepared. Apply this verse as it's meant to be applied. 
Harvest, that's the game plan. That's the strategy that Jesus gave us. Why did he give us this strategy? So that we can do what he says at the end of verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus gives us this game plan so that we can endure to the end. This is not works-based salvation. This is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. Those who truly belong to Christ will hold fast to the truth no matter what to the end of their lives. Not perfectly. Oh, no, not perfectly. But true believers will hold on to faith till the end. And Jesus tells us exactly how to do that. One final question. Why? Why should we trust Jesus' game plan? In this passage, Jesus promises horror, devastation, and opposition. And notice, he doesn't give us a plan of offense, only defense. Jesus doesn't tell us how to overcome the atrocities the world is going to throw at us. He doesn't lay out the plan for defeating evil in the world. He only gives us a plan of defense. Defense against what appears to be insurmountable odds. Why should we trust his game plan? Shouldn't we carry the ball down the field? Why why should we trust his game plan here when it's primarily based on defense and pits the church against the world? Because the game is already won. Because Jesus already took the ball down the field and scored the winning point. Because Jesus' death and resurrection have won the day. The game is won. The enemy has no hope, none. Do you know what we need to do, folks? We just need to run the clock out. Because Jesus already won the game. That's why we trust in Jesus' game plan. And also this, Jesus didn't just tell us the game plan. He followed his own game plan. He was never deceived. Not once. Even when Satan threw everything he had at him, Jesus refused to be duped. Jesus was never alarmed. Even when Pharisees threatened him. Even when soldiers came to arrest him, even when a trusted friend betrayed him, he was never alarmed. And get this, even when he did sweat drops of blood in the garden, he took it to the Father. And Jesus was prepared for antagonism. He faced the threats, he faced the accusations and the blows, and he only opened his mouth at strategic moments during his trial. Through it all, Jesus trusted his father. He followed the game plan, and he won. And that's why we trust his game plan. That's why we look to our Savior. He's already won. Bow with me. Holy God, Lord and Savior of our universe, you've already won. Your death and resurrection secured the victory over sin and death and the enemy. What have we to fear? Nothing. Even though the days will grow dark, 
deception will increase, war and disaster will intensify, persecution will come to our soil and to our doorsteps one day, but you gave us the plan. You told us how to respond. God, give us the strength to trust you, come what may. Teach us to bring our fear to you. Embolden us to proclaim the gospel. Give us the courage to stand before governors, rulers, and kings if it comes to that and to proclaim your truth. Thank you, Lord, for promising never to leave us or forsake us. We belong to you. We are yours. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.